Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That's what they were saying to us. Stop with the Western inventions, leave us alone, and we'll be able to sort things out. And whatever that sorting out means, I mean, Iran is incredibly influential in Iraq right now. Saudi Arabia is pushing to be more influential in Iraq. So I don't know what that country is going to look like in a few years. You know, Maybe it does split up, I don't know, but they absolutely wanted us to stay away from it. 15 years after the first bombs hit Baghdad, the reflections of a Muslim British soldier who eagerly went to Iraq from praying in the mosques of the UK to patrolling the streets of Basra. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is sponsored by Elwood Thompson's I Have to Vouch for The Beat, a place where you can come to build community, learn something new, or simply enjoy some delicious local food and and great wines. When the garage doors are open, come on in, grab a beverage from the Green and Grind or a flatbed from the Create Station and eat, work, or just relax. When the doors are down, chances are there's a class or private event taking place, but fear not, the beat will reopen again afterwards. Just contact Taylor Richardson to book the place, and you know I love Elwood Thompson's. I'm always there at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and visit them online at elwoodthompsons.com. My guest this week is Adnan Sarwar. He was a former British Muslim soldier who was shipped to Iraq 15 years ago as a specialist in landmine clearance. In his essay, he wrote, and I quote, I realized I felt freer in the army than I ever would in my parents' terraced house in the UK with an Asian cash and carry at one end and a mosque at the other. My comrades didn't judge me. They just wanted me to live my life. How are you, sir? I'm good. 15 years on and you you pen this essay. I want to know how, you know, the motivation to kind of finally do this, what you think about that invitation in hindsight seeing how how the the, the original plan of kind of an easy operation and an easy end game in Iraq mm. didn't pan out. Well, I mean, I was 24 years old when I invaded Iraq and I was co-located with the United States Marines. And we, you know, at that age you absolutely know what you're doing. You you've got the arrogance of youth, I suppose. And then, you know, I'm 40 in uh, in a few months. And I've just been reflecting back on the kind of things that we did and the kind of things we were up to and where Iraq is right now. And I just recently went back and traveled the whole country from north to south. I did a road trip. And, and I just wanted to find out if there was anything there that uh, had had you know, been made positive because of our intervention. And there were some positive stories and there were some negative stories, but this is just kind of, you know, um, a, you know, hurtling towards middle age, looking back and saying, what was I part of? I have to ask, and I'm in no, really, it's a privileged position to ask because I didn't serve. I was there as a civilian in New York City. I did uh, live through 9-11 and, and mm. I saw what happened and the, the, the militaristic buildup here afterwards into the 2002 election and whatnot. But, when you look back and uh, you see kind of how the uh, the surgery maybe was 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 done well, but the healing process and the stitching and everything afterwards yeah. and the reunification of the country was not. It was it was mishandled by Don Rumsfeld by the coalition troops. And I was I I, I want to ask someone this. Do you wonder if this <laughs> country was better off under Saddam Hussein? Was that just a too dangerous question that I asked? I don't think it's a dangerous question. I asked that question when I went to um, Iraq in February and March, and a lot of people said, which is very hard to hear, that the country was better off under Saddam because it was uh, it was under control. And they believed that there was no way ISIS could have formed in a country that was under Saddam's control because he would have just gotten rid of them. That said, there were there are a, a lot of Iraqis and a lot of Kuwaitis and a lot of Kurds who are very happy that we removed Saddam. They just want the country to be fixed, but it's 15 years on and it doesn't seem like we had a plan after the invasion. You have to remember 
the Iraq war happened, it was like a sandwich war. It happened in between us going into Afghanistan and we've not left Afghanistan really yet. So right in the middle of it, we had this war in another country. And so I don't know about the preparation. I don't know about the, um, the consequences. It, it just seems like we weren't prepared for what happened afterwards. And wasn't that the lesson that the first Bush administration in the early 90s with Operation Desert Storm, I was always under the impression in college and whatnot that he was advised by his generals to uh, not potentially cheat with a, uh, you know, flirt with this possibility of a power vacuum. Iraq was so crazily put together Mm. in this kind of the the colonial ooze that it emerged out of was so bizarre that the only person who could possibly hope to keep the tribes together, albeit with such a brutal iron fist, was someone like Saddam Hussein. I mean, you've got it exactly right. It's a tribal country and there's so many factions and so many um, loyalties that it's it's a really, really complicated country. And to look at it as a simple country that you could take over, it's misguided because either side of the country, you've got Saudi Arabia influencing the country with the Sunni population. You've got Iran next to them influencing the Shia population. And actually, funnily enough, the Shias in Iraq saw themselves as Arabs and not as Persians. It was only after this uh, this push that um, when the Sunnis took charge and they started having a go at the Shias, that the Shias then became aligned with the Shias in Iran. Very complicated. Now, where where do you stand in this in this axis? It says you grew up in a Muslim household in the UK, yes. a town in northwestern England. Your parents had come from Punjab in Pakistan in the 1970s. They ran a corner shop. Your manifest destiny was either to end up riding a, you know, driving a taxi or operating one of these these uh, dives on the corner or a store. And you wanted to, you know, you led a chaste and pious life. And at some point, how did that all, I, I want to get back in your head in the events yeah. of September 11th and how that changed your identity as a Muslim. I mean, it was one thing for you in the UK. It's another yeah. thing for us in Manhattan, but I, I think it assaulted all of Western civilization as a whole. No, it absolutely did. I mean, I have to be honest, the reason I joined the army was to escape and, you know, have an adventure. 9-11 happened just as I joined the military. And I remember I remember exactly the time it happened. We were in a signals wing, so it's just a little um, building with radios in there. And there was a guy who was uh, four ranks ahead of me, and he was listening to the radio, and we heard it over the radio, and he sat us all down and he said, this is going to be war, that America will not stand for this. And he'd been in the 1991 Gulf War. So he was absolutely determined that this was going to be a war that we were going to go to. And we ended up going. But for me, you know, I can't pretend to be some political geoscientist and all this kind of stuff. Right. You know, back then I was a 24-year-old kid looking for an adventure. And I really wanted to go to war. You really wanted to go to war chiefly because you were bored? Not because I was bored, but because I was looking for an escape. I was looking for some kind of uh, identity. And a lot of people do that. In the UK, you can see a lot of people from poor towns join the military. And I think you do it in the US too. I think people join the military to get a new future, get themselves a college degree, etc. But you are a very literate person. You're clearly well-read and well-written in this. I'm, I'm speaking to you uh, as someone yeah. who was wowed by the essay. And surely you studied some modicum of history or surely you looked back at it. I, I wonder if that at that point, I mean, at the yeah. 9-11 point and everything that happened, let's say, between 2001 and 2003, yeah. were, were, were people coming up to you, kind of traditional Anglican Brits and Scots and whatnot, and asking you as a Muslim to kind of stand up and denounce your people, like to be one of these people. I, I just remember having conversations with so many people in the United States that were put in that uncomfortable position. Like, why are you making me, uh, you know, underscore my, my bona fides as a, as a Muslim American, for example? 
Absolutely. No, I, there was a shift uh, in the way people saw you and the way people thought about you. Um, but education wise, I screwed up my education and I'm, I'm self-educated. So I, I, I mean, I literally was a doorman three years ago um, when I read a lot of books and then ended up at The, at the Economist. Um, but at the time, yeah, there definitely was a shift in the way people saw Muslims and thought about Muslims and asked them in several types of ways, either by their behavior or actually physically asking them to show some kind of loyalty to the West. And, you know, you mentioned Full Metal Jacket in this, yeah. and that was one of the most impactful movies I saw in my adolescence. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't help but think back to that that, that initial scene where all of these, um, you know, young kids going into war, they're getting their heads shaved, and there's yes. that song, Hello yeah. Vietnam. And I'm wondering yeah. what your moment kind of was tantamount to that. And may I say, as an aside, it's very Kubrick-esque, the scene that you described coming into Kuwait where all of the fellow soldiers were asked to surrender their porno magazines. I mean, that's such a detail that just blows my mind. And you kind of had to pry some from their cold, dead hands. Yeah, yeah. But take me back to that initial moment. Well, I mean, the war has been talked about and shown on TV and it just becomes this moment which people talk about in a very weird manner. I wanted to be very, very honest about what happened in that war. And those details are, are golden. You know, the fact that, you know, we were all told to uh, get rid of our porn because we were going to a Muslim country. Um, so, yeah, at, at the time, it was it was very surreal. Uh, it was like a film. And this is the weird thing for me was because I'd watched Full Metal Jack and I watched mainly American war films. When I was there in Kuwait and there was this massive expanse of land in front of me and you had tanks going across it and you had helicopters in the sky, it absolutely felt like a film. It didn't feel real for me at all until um, I, you know, I lost a friend of mine uh, f- about three weeks after we crossed the border. I unfortunately lost two friends in, in an ambush. But up until that moment, honestly, it was, it was the, the experience was so big, it was filling me and I, I couldn't grasp it. Were you were you uh, kind of trained or did you try to motivate and kind of reading up on Saddam's atrocities or some of the things his sons did? I want to because it's clear there's this this thing that you illustrate for us and kind of getting revved up and going there and the adrenaline mm. rush. And it's something that's decidedly something an early 20 something yeah. would feel. But you're uh, still not really privy to the horror of, of losing someone or seeing somebody tortured or mutilated yeah. that had to dawn on you subsequently. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when we got into uh, theatre, as it's called, we were given intelligence briefs. So the uh, intelligence people would say to us, this is what's happened. And, you know, like when we were going up into Basra, they talked to us about the Marsh Arabs and said that the marshes were drained by Saddam. And so we got, we got uh, you know, short history lessons at the start of the day. And we were kind of, you know, we knew where we were. We knew we were in Iraq and we knew what country surrounded it. But that was... You know, I wasn't I wasn't a big reader at the time, and I have to, that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be very honest about who I was at the time. I don't want to pretend I was this learned person who, who went there. And there was a lot of people like that around me. We were just there doing a job we were told to do. And I'm quoting you again in your essay. It said, over the course of five or six weeks, we inched towards the Iraqi borders. We got closer. The bombs began to fall. We presumed that Saddam had chemical weapons, so we spent all day and all night in boots and thick charcoal-lined camouflage suits that would neutralize nerve agents. We got so used to these frequent attacks that at night, when the sirens woke us, we'd groggily pull on our gas masks and fall asleep again. Yeah. It's hard to picture that. A person who has used uh, chemical weapons before against yeah. the Kurds in the late 80s. And, and, and it's something that if it, you, it would stand to reason that if he has nothing to lose, he wants to go out like bang, bang. Yeah. 
Well, you know, when we were in Kuwait, we were digging into the uh, digging into the desert. We were literally digging trenches and staying in trenches. And it was me and the U.S. Marines, and we were kept pushing forward. And we kept going through these suspected chemical attacks as people would shout, gas, gas, gas. We'd put our gas masks on and just carry on whatever we were doing. So if we were driving, we'd be driving gas masks. If we were digging trenches, we'd be doing that. If we were sleeping, we'd sleep in those. But it just happened so many times that, you know, soldiers get used to things. And we were, you know, we were talking about being bored of his, his chemical attacks. And, you know, but he was bombing us when we were coming up. But they weren't, they weren't chemical weapons, thankfully. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzai. We're talking to Adnan Sarwar. He was a British Muslim soldier sent to Iraq in 2003. He wrote about his um, experience as someone who kind of broke out of, of a very sheltered childhood in the UK to kind of learn the, the, the tragedies and the horrors of war. And the, in many respects, uh, some of the, the uh, surreal aspects that you wouldn't expect for people going into this massive campaign. His documentary recently broadcast on the BBC is Journey into the Danger Zone, Iraq. I want to get a sense for how you were greeted by Iraqis, both Shi'i and Sunni, and where the, 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 the westernized Pakistani soldier stands on that continuum. The Iraqis are um, largely insulted by the uh, headlines that we print in the West, and they um, they can't really recognize themselves in in the words and you know the, the the newspapers and the news will put out the uh, put out bad news because it's what's absolutely important right then if there's a suicide bombing we do have to report it but you know there's no kind of balance of of good news so when i went to iraq and i visited i mean i crossed the whole country from north to south um i just i, I felt i felt sorry for for the iraqis because they said you know you're the the image you've got of us is completely wrong you know they were incredibly sophisticated people it was a complicated population just like any other they had the same kind of wants and desires that we had they just wanted to go and uh, you know raise their kids and get them educated and it was a country with such a grand grand history and you can't imagine the you know the cradle civilization the first ever uh, written story came from there gilgamesh so there was all this um, all this proud history and then there was this broken country right now and one of the things they wanted was they wanted us just to leave them to it and they said you know the west should just leave us to it now and we'll be able to um sort this out how's that possible though if the west uh botched this if you leave it to it leave who to it because iraq is a colonial construct it's this yeah. hodgepodge it's a humpty dumpty obviously the kurds want their autonomous yeah. region iran demands its sphere of influence you have the the aggrieved uh, uh, Sunni community and, you know, lost Saddam mm. Hussein and Tikrit. W- leave who to what? You ultimately have to pick yeah. a victor. You can't You can't rule kind of by delegation. Well, you know, that's that's the thing, though, isn't it? You've got the Kurds in the north. The Kurds are never going to get their, you know, get their dream, which is Kurdistan, because it's split across four countries. And if it happened in Iraq, it might have a domino effect. And I don't think the Iranians would let them have their, and the Turks and Syrians. So you've, you've got that problem there with the with the Kurds. And then you've got the Shia Sunni split, which is talked about in the media quite a lot, but actually I saw a lot of reconciliation going on between those two populations. And they were sick and tired of the violence. They just wanted, so that's what they were saying to us, stop with the Western inventions, leave us alone, and we'll be able to sort things out. And whatever that sorting out means, I mean, Iran is incredibly influential in Iraq right now. Saudi Arabia is pushing to be more influential in Iraq. So I don't know what that country is going to look like in a few years. You know, Maybe it does split up, I don't know. But they absolutely wanted us to stay away from it. Do you wonder if uh, the United States and, and Tony Blair and the Brits went back and decided, um, I mean, this is all 
2020 in clear hindsight, and it's impossible with the perfect counterfactual to incorporate the Ba'athists, to incorporate some of the disenfranchised mm. uh, people of Saddam's regime. Many, many who could plausibly say I was doing this under duress, out of self-preservation. Yeah. That we could have kept together some semblance of a of a place, and and not. I mean, f- and and again, I'm I'm loading you with questions. Is this a failed state right now? Would that not have happened? Oh, so, sorry. Is it a failed state now? Do you look at it as a failed state now? Is it a functioning I, state? I think it's a functioning state. I think it's a functioning state, and I think it's got a lot of uh, potential. Um, so I don't see it as a failed state. I see it as a country that's got absolute problems. But the people I saw there who were fixing the problems themselves on the ground without government help absolutely made me believe in the future of, of Iraq. And I'm not, you know, being a, 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 just an optimist about that. That was the... It was a very accurate reading that um, I took and a few other people took as well. Um, So I don't think it's a failed state. Um, I think Iraq could have a great future. I really wish one day that everybody could visit Iraq like I did, like as a tourist. But when we did go, I have to say, we um, uh, on the documentary, we did nearly get hit by ISIS a couple of times. So there is still some danger there. How is that ISIS? I mean, that is a big asterisk. That is a big if from self-determination. How is that going to be cleared outside of a functioning, powerful, cohesive military or National Guard without, without outside players? Well, that's you know, exactly like you said before, um, talking, talking to the Ba'athists and stuff. And, and when I went to Iraq this time, I talked to people who were in the Jaysh al-Mahdi, Muqtad al-Sadr's army. And I met a man who uh, tried to kill me in 2006 and was talking to him. And we, we just know through history that you end up talking to these people and that's how you get a political solution. Britain had to talk to the IRA. Britain had hundreds of hundreds of years of, of, of somewhat, you know, representative democracy, no? Yeah. Yeah, I know, but this, this is the thing. So when you were saying, could we have fixed it with bringing the Ba'athists in and stuff, that's, that, that's the solution there. It's that kind of inclusive talk and there's going to have to be some very hard conversations. And we have to just... Look at the peop- Look at people's motivations there, and just say there are there are people. Who, I mean, Muqtada al-Sadr is probably the most powerful man in uh, in in Iraq, and he's a Shia cleric. Yeah, will you will you break out kind of his allegiance to Tehran versus his autonomy? Now that's recently been discussed in his rise. He's kind of cutting out his own swath as his own man. It, it yeah. was thought of when he was looked at as a threat to the United States and the Western operation that he was just a pure proxy for the Ayatollahs. Yeah. No, I think yeah, exactly like you say. It's far more complicated than that, and it's uh, he is his own uh, person. When he was uh, around in 2003, when he set up the um, Jaysh al-Mahdi, the Jam, uh, which was uh, the main force that we were fighting in in Basra, he just his main aim was to kick the British and American troops out of uh, Iraq. And then once he felt he'd achieved that in 2006, 2007, he disbanded that. Uh, army and now he's set up a different army called Saif al Sariya, which is the peace brigades, and they are the people who fought against ISIS. So he's, you, you can see from those two actions, if you judge him by his actions, he's a man who is based in Iraq and wants to be uh, involved in the politics and the, um, well, well, the military side of that country. Adan, is that a bipartisan or tripartisan army force of, of Shi'i, Sunni, maybe Kurd? coming in to fight ISIS as, a, as an exogenous threat? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the, the thing about ISIS was it did unite a lot of people, but then, um, I mean, you had the Kurds fighting, and then when the Battle for Mosul started, the, the Kurds were uh, taken to one side and said, you know, it has to be an Iraqi-led invasion. Um, so again, it goes back to the tribes that are there and the factions that are there, and they all have to work together in some manner. But 
I mean, right now, look at what happened to the Kurds after Iraq uh, took took back Mosul. They they got rid of them off the Kirkuk oil fields and stuff. So it's it's complicated. But when they do want to work together, they they do work together. They they did get rid of ISIS, and it was all of those populations who did that together. Adan, when did you return back to the UK? And tell me about the life you set up after that. I well, I left the military in in two thousand and seven. Mm-hmm. And so I'd done the war in 2003, and then I did the um, I did I was in Iraq again 2006, 2007, which was, which was a very dangerous period because we'd pulled out of all of the bases around Basra and all gone onto Basra air station. So it just gave the insurgency one target. So they just rained bombs on us about, you know, 10 to 12 times a day. And then I left the army in 2007 and ended up being a military advisor for Film and TV. Um, which was just sh- showing actors how to use guns and showing them how to run around in uniform. Um, and then after that, I was a I was a doorman for four years in my 30s uh, where I self-educated and then got my job at The Economist. And then, so uh, your second tour of duty, I want to get to what extent it was informed by the, the 7-7 bombings, what happened in 2005 in the London underground, which is kind of looked at as the 9-11 of it, London. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, Take us back to that. Where were you? How did you process it? How did it recourse back to what was going on in Iraq? I was part of the uh, part of a unit which does bomb disposal, which is based near London, and I'd recently left that unit, and then, then that's when 7-7 happened. 7-7 was uh, incredibly shocking for Britain because of the scale of it, and uh, and you know those those images of the buses. Um, so it was it, it was a real moment for Britain, and it was like it, you, you're absolutely right. It was like we'd just had our 9/11, and it, it kind of strengthened our resolve to either finish uh, a war against people or or push back harder against people. Um, and then, you know, soon enough, I was back on a plane to, to the Iraq war, which is, you know, uh, you, you can relate the two things together, but it, it, was, it was quite distant from that. As, as did his counterpart in George W. Bush, Tony Blair, your former prime minister, got a tremendous amount of flack for his willingness to cooperate with the United States in this campaign. I mean, if you remember, yeah. France stood out. Other players this, said it was not a good idea. It was not the most multilateral thing in the world. You had a bunch of people here on Fox News advertising freedom fries. I mean, that was the zeitgeist yes. mm-hmm. in 02 and 03. I want to get a sense for how this was metabolized by by British public opinion over the past 15 years. Uh, what's I mean... You know, yeah, I mean, the past 15 years, we, so the Iraq war um, caused all of the protests. And when, so the Ameri- Americans have got a different uh, relationship with their military. You know, if you go uh, through, through the streets and uniform people, thank you for your service. In, in the UK, it's slightly different to that. Um, but I think the UK had had enough uh, by 2006, 2007, and they really wanted to pull out and, and just stop these wars. Uh, so that's that was the, the mood. Um, and I think, you know, in Britain, Pretty much everybody, and including soldiers, if you get them drunk enough, will admit that the Iraq War was a mistake. Um, and the the you know e- even though it did things for me personally, it changed my life and all that kind of stuff. Overall, um, I, I think British soldiers would say that you know it it wasn't uh, the right thing to do. But interestingly, Tony Blair is still uh, seen as, as as the character you described there. Is still seen as somebody that you wouldn't want to do politics with. Whereas George Bush's reputation has completely changed recently, hasn't it? <laughs> it has. And I mean, looking back at this now and exactly. in, in, in self-educating exactly. and looking at what happened to the rest of the region and how it informed the Obama administration. Now, kind of, I, I want to tap your, your, your post-doorman time mind <laughs> in this really shell shock the United States out of an intervention in Syria. 
Uh, I yes, want to get your yes, thinking yes, in, in yeah, seeing yeah. Um, Bashar al-Assad use gas and kind of use yeah. it with some degree of impunity. Yeah. Um, and and the United States being so maybe PTSD'd by the Iraq yes. experience and yeah, Obama yeah. saying, I want nothing to do with it. I know. I've, I've spoken to um, U.S. soldiers and I've spoken to British soldiers about this exact question. And your, your, the, your previous question links to this. The British had had enough, and and I and if you look at the British now, you know it's it's they're slightly shrinking with Brexit, etc., and you know uh, defence spending. Um, I don't think the British would be able to go on that kind of campaign uh, anytime soon, and I think the American appetite for it changed as well. And you know that's why you had Syria. We said a lot of strong things about Syria, but we just didn't go in, and it was because you're absolutely right. It was because of Iraq, and we just had a very recent experience with a country next door and got bogged down into a war that we didn't want to be bogged down in. And so there was a there was that calculation made. You know, um, Syria w- w- Syria suffered because we we just didn't have the appetite for it. Well, I mean, no one. This wasn't uh, Colin Powell clutching for yellow cake or in front of a congressional testimony or anything. This was mm. very clearly whether his generals did it or or it was slipped through the cracks. He felt okay in using it, and Obama yeah. drew a red line that he did not enforce. And yeah. I always wondered, in the wake of all this, I asked myself, what happened to multilateralism? I mean, say you mm. what you want about Tony Blair and George W. Bush, but there was this. You know, this cross-Atlantic exceptionalism that everybody talks about, and it goes back to the time of Churchill and FDR and Churchill and Truman. And has that been lost? Have we have we collectively, because of the experience where you were one of the boots on the ground, lost the ability to go out and kind of defend the Western definition of, of goodness and order? Yeah, I think. I mean, uh, unless unless something drastic happens, I think you know. I think we all realize we live in a different world now. I think we realize how powerful China is. We certainly realize how powerful Russia is. I mean, Russia took the opportunity to go into Syria when when we didn't, and it changed the nature of the game. It 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 changed what people thought about Russia. It was an absolute gamble, and it worked for for Russia. So. I think, yeah, I think we live in that world now where we where we decide, um, you know, do we actually go there and do we want to uh, make war with these people? And on that kind of scale, on that kind of scale of Afghanistan and Iraq, I don't think we're going to do that. I think we're going to have these kind of short, sharp interventions uh, with elite troops, etc. But the problem is then you're just moving the war towards just using special forces soldiers and that's not an answer because those those soldiers were uh, are trained to do something different you know and so a full scale war is is maybe what's needed but the appetite is certainly not there for that and also the um the coalitions that you could form today i don't know i don't know how you would do that Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Our guest this week is Adnan Sarwar. He was a former British Muslim soldier. He penned the essay, Saddam Hussein, My Part in His Downfall. You went from praying in the mosque of the UK to patrolling the streets of Iraq, and you're commenting on this 15 years on. I do want to get your thoughts on uh, the broader super regional vacuum in this. I mean, loosely defined, everybody seems to think that this has opened up. Uh, you know, ISIS is kind of fighting uh, very for various vacuums. The, the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia hates the Iranians. Iran sees mm. a potential for a sphere of influence. Tehran, Baghdad, uh, Damascus. Spell it out for me. And is there any possible way to look? There's so many metaphors involved in this that go back mm. originally to the colonial experience. And I'd have to take you back to the, 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 the early and mid 20th century. How else are you going to let this unfold? I mean, I'm impressed <laughs> in the essay that you said there are Iraqis that want to take their own self-determination. Yeah. But everybody is seemingly saying that this is up for grabs and it's it's time to take up arms. Well, the, the, that that's the unfortunate side of it. The Iraqis are saying 
leave us alone, this is our country, we'll sort it out. But it's not just us, it's not just the West who have to leave them alone. The Iranians, like I said, have got a huge influence in there and they've got they've got real reasons to be influential in there. You know, they've got Karabla, which is one of the holiest sites for Shia Muslims around the world. And the Saudis have got uh, a reason to be um, influential in there. So Iraq wants to be left to, to do its own thing, but it might not be able to because it's got two very, very powerful neighbors there that want to be involved. And obviously, it's, you know, it's I think it's the fourth biggest oil reserve in the world, but it's certainly the second biggest oil producer for OPEC. Um, so it's it's just it's just too important on an international stage for it to become unstable again. So the West probably has to get involved. And then you have to have these very pragmatic conversations with um, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, walk me through with predictions of, of, of what you'd like to see written. Are we going to see a book out of you, for example? I certainly hope so. I'm working on that furiously. But uh, um, I'm, I'm not sure yet. Um, predictions, I think, I, don't, I, I really don't know. I don't know what Iraq's going to look like in 15 years' time. But I met a, a young lady there called Rawan Salim. And Rawan was in Babylon. And so she was arguing against corruption. And I remember meeting her thinking, my God, I, I was not as brave as you when I was that age. And she, she, so I went into a classroom with her and she just walked out the uh, walked out one of her exams having written a political uh, statement across her exam paper and uh, so she's a bit of a trouble causer but you could absolutely see the potential in her you know i thought you're going to be the prime minister of this country one day um so there's there, there are those kind of chinks of hope that you see in that country but the, just the waves in that region um and the powerful people who are who surround iraq might not let that happen so i don't know i think you know are, are we going to be in a constant flux um, is Iraq going to break up? Um, I don't know. And I think when when the Saudis were worrying about like the Shia crescent and the Shia, you know, like Iran trying to get to the sea and stuff, that I think that's already happened. With you know, you've got Hezbollah and you've got you know Muqtada al Sadr. You, you're right, he is an Iraqi, but um, you know there is a, a, a Shia um, kind of influence there. So you've got Iran, then you go through Iraq, you've got Syria, you've got Lebanon. There is this route to the sea for the Iranians and. Everybody wants, you know, everybody wants to do trade. Um, who knows? I think, I think Iran is looking extremely powerful right now. I want to quote what you closed with in this essay. You said, my war was less exciting than it should have been, even though I'd smelt and tasted battle, even though one of my mates had died. Saddam had been overthrown, but he was still at large and Iraq didn't look like it was free. I couldn't wait to get back out there. It's very paradoxical. And mm. I wonder where your mind is 15, I mean, now a good decade after your, your final tour there. What, what, what happens when you close your eyes at night? What's the first thing you see? Have you, have you uh, been tormented by this more than you've let on? Kind of let us into your mind, if you will. I, I, haven't, I haven't been tormented by I, I This might sound really weird, but I'm kind of um, grateful that I had those experiences, uh, you know, Yes, we tore apart a country. Yes, we affected a lot of people's lives. Personally, to me, um, the war completely changed me. It made me think differently. It gave me a huge amount of uh, imagination and courage. And um, so those thoughts I had back then, you know, I recognized that young 24-year-old boy. But we all change, you know, I'm nearly 40 years old now. And um, I look at that boy right then and I just think, you know, he was doing the right thing for himself and everybody has their own reason for doing things. You know, I wasn't, I have to be honest, I wasn't there to, to save the world. I joined the army for an adventure and they certainly gave me one. Um, 
but yeah, you know, that that's who I was back then. And I, 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 I just think it's interesting to reflect back on who you were and see where you've got to. Adnan Sarwar, I appreciate it greatly. Your essay was Saddam Hussein, my part in his downfall, available in the latest issue of uh, The Economist 1843 magazine. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you, sir. I'm so grateful for you for coming on on short notice. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Charlotte Candler is our editorial assistant. We are, indeed, on NPR One and on iTunes at fullderadio.com. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 